0: Wow, that was a really pathetic clap.
1: Yeah, Please oh. welcome Mark Halversman. <laughs> oh, well.
0: well, shucks. You guys are so easy to manipulate. I just love it. I think we need to take an offering for my hair transplant. I want you to dig deeply. I don't want to hear the, the jangle of change. I want to hear the swish of Bill's. You, you realize some of the new people are going, oh, my God, what kind of church have I come to? These people are mentally ill. Well, we, we are mentally ill, but in a nice sort of way. So, so anyway, if you're here for the first time, don't leave until this is over. Could you guys lock the doors, please? Thank you. All right. So, Hope Series. We're still in the Hope Series. And... Um, I listened, Shelly and I were in San Francisco last weekend ministering at a church up there and listened to the sermon on the way back and I thought, wow, he really scorched him good. And then he said, well, the person supposed to speak today isn't here. So he said, Mark, you can do it. And I came up with this message and it's worse than what he spoke last Sunday. So grip your chairs, get ready. It's going to be a rough ride. Anyway, no, it's, not. it's going to be a good ride. I want to tell you a story that just happened this week, just another indication of how really wonderful the Holy Spirit is. Someone in our Connect group called up a couple nights ago and said, would you please ask the Lord what scripture passage I should be uh, praying before I go to bed tonight? And I thought immediately, what am I? You know, what, am I in charge of your prayer life? Seriously? But that's what I thought. That's not what I said. I said, okay, I'll ask the Lord. So I said, well, what scripture passage, Father, should she be reading tonight? And immediately a passage came to mind. And I thought, that's interesting. So I went to Shelley and I said, so-and-so's texted and she wants to know what she should pray, uh, what she should uh, dwell on tonight before she goes to bed. What scripture passage? And immediately Shelley said the same passage. Ephesians three ten to 20. I said, that's the one I got. And she said, well, that's what came to my mind. So I texted uh, this girl and, and said, well, um, Shelly and I got Ephesians three ten to 20. And so I think that's what you should read tonight before you go to bed. About uh, was it 20 minutes later, I got a text. And it was a photograph of her Bible, which was open to that passage when she went to look it up. Isn't that, isn't that? I love stuff like that. So the Holy Spirit, is he even cares about what portion of Scripture you read. It's not to say, hey, as long as I read the Word, that's fine. That's good. But he even cares about what portion. So sometimes you can ask him and say, hey, Lord, what do you want me to look at today? He does that with me often. And so many times what I read is just, bam, just what I needed to hear. So I thought I'd tell you that story, and now we're going to talk about hope. And uh, this, it's, it sounds really negative, and it starts really negative, and I, and I think you're going to get that. But I want you to understand that it's going to end really, really positive. What uh, is my hope? My hope is freedom from myself. There is so much about me that I don't like. I'm just telling you the truth. I feel like a bull in a china shop half the time. I talk when I shouldn't. I don't when I should. I've got nasty attitudes. And a selfishness within me that won't give up. My selfishness and my self-centeredness just won't give up. And I tire of it. Honestly, people, I really tire of it. And as I get older, heaven's getting closer. And I think about it a lot when I lie in bed. I think about heaven and what it will be like. And the biggest thing, two big things, I won't have to put up with me anymore. And I get to be with Jesus. It's as good as it gets. But the first one's a real comfort. I won't have to drag my selfishness into heaven with me. That first moment in heaven will be the first moment that I'm not self-centered. And I won't ever have to be self-centered again. It's just good news. Free of that. Seems to me like I know two kinds of Christians. Christians that when I talk about grace, you understand grace. Grace is unmerited favor that you didn't earn and you don't deserve. But he just plain gives it to you. It is ridiculous and absurd. It's extravagant. I ask him so many times, why do you put up with me? Why are you so relentlessly patient with me? And the answer is grace. And some Christians, when I start talking about grace, man, they just light up. They just like, like, they get it. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 I need that. That's the only thing that keeps me going. And other Christians, I talk about grace, it's like, yeah, that's nice. That's a nice idea. That's good. I'm shocked. Well, they just don't get it. Why don't they get it? Why isn't grace wonderful to everybody? Why... Why do some of us, it's everything, and others, it's just a nice theology. Well, here's the truth for me. Grace is only wonderful after you've truly seen the immensity of your own sin. Only, it only becomes great when you see the darkness inside. And then grace is everything. Grace is your lifeline. Grace is your hope. Grace is why you can go to sleep at night. As Christians, you know, we all acknowledge that we're sinners. But for some of us, it's kind of an academic thing. It's a theoretical thing. There's two ways that we miss the immensity of our sin. The first is that we're confused about the nature of sin. And the second is that we grade on the curve. (laughs) Cha-ching, that one's going to hit home. You know, when, we were, when I was a kid growing up in the, I won't tell you, decade, the 1950s. Gosh, I'm old. It's amazing I'm still breathing. <sighs> I'm still alive. Good, this is good. I can get through this message. In the 1950s, you went to school, and it was really simple. You took an exam, and if you got 50% or better, you passed. And if you got anything under that, you failed. So it was crystal clear, and there was plenty of failures. And then they came along, and we rejoiced, they came along with the curve. My salvation. Okay, here's how the curve works. Now, this is backwards, so I've got to put my hand in the right place. Okay. Now, this is the bad part of the curve if you're over here close to this little thing right there you're a total and complete loser but as the curve goes up you enter the chubby part where everybody's happy because it's kind of like average here like you're, you're not the worst you're, you're pretty good you know you're pretty good and then it goes back down again to the really cool people These are the ones in school, they had no friends. All they did was study all the time. And they got straight A's. And they were socially deficient. And they were utter social losers, but they were brilliant. And then an amazing thing happened. They started a dot-com company. And they became billionaires. And this utter loser has the robo-babe of the universe as a wife. Plus boats and yachts and houses and, and jet airplanes. That's not fair either, is it? But that, at that end of the curve, life is really good. But for most of us, we're just, we're just happy to be content in the chubby part of the curve. Because you're going to pass there. You're going to get a passing grade. And as long as you can find someone to the left of you, as long as you can find someone to the left of you who's a bigger loser than you are, you're fine, right? Come on, you identify with this, right? And then we take the curve and we apply it to our own sinful nature. And as long as we can find someone who's murdered someone last week, we're okay, because you can, if you can find someone off there, over there, at that nasty end of the curve, sure, you're not this guy with the dot-com company and all that. You're somewhere over here in the middle of the curve, but you're okay. No problem. This is good. If I can find a bigger loser than me in church, my Christianity is just fine. My soul's just fine. But it's not. God doesn't grade on the curve. And we shouldn't grade on the curve either. That's the first problem. Why we don't see the immensity of our sin and why we don't really value grace is because we're grading ourselves on the curve. Here's the second one. We don't understand the true nature of sin. We think let's just be honest, okay? We do a little road test here. We're just going to do a little test here. So I'm going to ask you a question and Just be ruthlessly honest with me. We're going to see a show of hands. How many of you most of the time define sin as the bad things that I do? (coughs) Hands up, hands up. Your teachers at this church have utterly failed you. I 'm now in the flat beginning part of the loser end of the curve. That is not sin. Sin is not the things that you do. Those are sins, plural, they're actions. But sin doesn't start as an action. it starts as an attitude. The only reason sin can exist in your life is because there's something wrong with how you're thinking, right? Sin is not what you do. Sin is Sin is how you think about yourself and God. Sin is about one relationship, me and God. That's where you will see it. That's where it is powerful. That's where it makes a difference. What is this attitude that is the root of sin? What is it? What does this attitude say? What's the thought behind this? Anybody? Hmm? Yeah, I think it's this. Is the, it, sin is the attitude that says, I will do my life my way. It's essentially independence from God. It's blowing them off. Say, I'll come to church on Sunday and I'll sing the right songs and stuff and I'll have a bit of an emotional experience. But when it comes right down to it, Lord, as soon as I'm out of here, it's my life my way. It's an independence of God. You're like, you just don't matter enough, Lord, to to really affect my decisions. I don't care if there's a God who created me and loves me and has a plan for my life. I'm going to ignore all that. I'm going to do my life my way. It is essentially self-centeredness with regard to God. Can anyone own this? this, Can you own this? I mean, if you can't, you're not self-aware. Look, this attitude of profound independence from God is our human nature. Let me tell you this, you came by it honestly. Why do I say that? Here's an interesting thing. How many of you how many of you are there in the world? One. There's going on 8 billion people on the surface of this planet and there's only one you. Why is that? DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid. The code that God used to define your individuality, your uniqueness. It makes you unique. And when you realize your uniqueness, when you realize your uniqueness, when it dawns on you there's only one of me That makes you special, right? Makes you special. You're self-aware of your uniqueness, and your pride loves that. Your pride absolutely loves your uniqueness, and your pride will do anything to accent that uniqueness, to keep it front and center. Humans are the only animals on earth that are self aware. Do you understand? We have an awareness of our selfhood. We have an awareness of our uniqueness. And we will do anything to protect that uniqueness because that uniqueness is our identity. That is who we are. Are you with me? Do you understand? We all want to feel special. Interestingly, we were created special. We were created unique. But that's not enough. My pride isn't content with just realizing that I'm unique. My pride wants to be seen to be unique and distinguished from every other self around me. Right? What, how do we compliment someone? How do we compliment someone? If I say, He's one in a thousand. (laughs) It's a bit of a compliment, isn't it? He's one in a million. What's Blake like? Blake is one in a million, man. Blake is something. Blake is special. Shut up and pay attention when I'm complimenting you. (laughs) I'm complimenting you, Blake. I want a little focus. Do you understand? You know, you know, have you ever heard the expression he's a distinguished gentleman? Do you understand what the word distinguished means? He's different from everybody else. He's distinguished. That's what makes him special. He's special, she's special, she's one in a million. he's he's unique. What's the worst thing you can say about somebody in this country? Who used the word average? Cha Ching. Oh yeah, yeah, he's average he'd be more special if he was a criminal. Oh, yeah, he's a drug lord. He's evil, but he's really, really special. That's a compliment, right? To, oh, no, he's just, I don't know, he's, he's just, he's normal, he's average. That's an insult. Because his uniqueness is not being celebrated. And his self is not being celebrated. And listen, you can lie to yourself all you want, But this God-designed individuality that is the source of your identity and your selfhood by God's design is the greatest gift you can have and it's the biggest problem you can have. Because your pride will continually assert itself to magnify and celebrate your specialness. And it's in competition with every other self in this room. And worst of all, it's in competition with the source of all selfhood from whom self comes, the great self, the self-existent one. Your pride is in competition with him for attention. Can anyone here own that? Just, just give me a nod if you, if you understand what's going on inside of you. Because it's that understanding of knowing what's going on at that level that's going to save you. It's knowing that that's going to make it possible for God to do something about it and set you free of yourself. We're born unique and we fight to maintain that self-centeredness and self-determination. When I was a child, my aunt wrote a letter to my mother And she, too, was having children at the same time. And they were my cousins, and they were a little younger, so I was a little older. And she wrote, my aunt wrote to my mother. And something she said in that letter stayed with me my whole life. She was reflecting on her three children and how they acted towards one another. And in the letter, she said this. Why do they learn the word mine so much earlier than the word yours? Do you understand that we were born in a rebellious state against God? As soon as we become aware of ourself, we enter into a rebellion against the great self. We come by it honestly. It's our human nature. What we need to be set free of is our human nature. And what sets us free is the divine nature. And when we become a Christian, we think the problem's over. No, uh uh-uh. No, when you became a Christian, the problem became obvious. I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, I really thought I was pretty good. I mean, I'd hurt a lot of people, was a manipulative weasel, completely self-centered and dominant and all that. But that's, everyone's like that, right? So I'm okay. I hadn't killed anyone lately. So I'm in the nice part of the curve, so everything's fine. And then you become a Christian. And it's like... It's like your heart is a shack out in the forest somewhere that hasn't been lived on in for 20 or 30 years. And that's your heart. And you don't go there very often. So you're not really aware of what's in it because you've never really looked very much. And then you become a Christian and God puts a big light inside that shack. And you walk into that shack and there's dead rats in the corner. And there's snakes around here and there's cobwebs and everything and it is just disgusting and you go oh my god this is my heart you're shocked you're you're overwhelmed and you think this is just horrible that's called truth that's called self-awareness you don't understand who you really are until you come and get close to Jesus and he, he's, at the, he's at the other total extreme end of the curve. He's like perfect. And no matter where you are on that curve, you're not perfect. And you become aware of that. And it's disgusting and it's frightening and it's horrible. And it's the best possible thing that could ever happen to you. Because as soon as that happens, this is what you realize. I'm a mess and I need help. My pride is not my friend, my pride is my enemy. And I need some power bigger than me. Back in the day, Elvin Bishop, remember, wrote Fooled Around and Fell in Love, one of my favorite guitar solos. Simple, but it's beautiful. He wrote another song about his alcoholism and his brokenness. And this is the line in the chorus My weakness is stronger than I am. Very often, our weakness is stronger than I am. Make sense? That's the realization that it is to be a Christian. Now, you can fall into self-loathing if you want, because you get every reason to be disgusted with yourself. Or you can say, God's grace is unbelievably wonderful. God's, every time I see the depth of my selfishness, I think, this too you've forgiven Like seriously, this too, you've forgiven? You are amazing. You're ridiculously wonderful. I didn't even see how bad it was and you already died for it. Listen, the key to understanding your own sin is to put an equal sign after it. The increased understanding of my sin equals the wonder of God's grace. The miracle of God's grace is only evident when you understand the mess he had to fix. The devil wants you to stay focused on the, oh my God, I'm far worse than I ever thought I would be. I'm unbelievably bad. I am completely wretched. This, uh, you know, I should just hate myself even more. Maybe if I hate myself even more, it will please the Lord. The devil wants to keep you focused on that. He doesn't want the equal sign, and he doesn't want the equals, the wonder of God's love and forgiveness. So his whole focus is to keep you over there, living in shame and brokenness and self-loathing. And some Christian traditions call that holiness. And they capitalize on shaming you as much as possible because you're easily manipulated when you're living in a state of shame. But when you put the equal sign in there, and you say this is how much God has loved and forgiven me, everything changes. I mean, everything changes. I can look at my sin and say thank you instead of I need punishment. I can live as a response to God's love, not trying to earn it. And that's the wonder of grace. Isn't that amazing? Now back to some more bad news for a minute. You know my problem with... I'm just going to get political just for a minute if you don't mind. I don't do this hardly ever. The thing I have, the problem I have with liberalism and the left is a fundamental assumption that they have that I deeply disagree with. They believe that people are basically good. People are basically good. It's society that's broken. Really? What's society but the cumulative effect of individuals? People are not basically good. People are basically self-centered. People are only good when they have more than enough and can afford to give some away. The rest of the time, they're as selfish as everybody else. We are born this way by virtue of our uniqueness and our self-awareness and our pride. We are born broken. We are born in a state of rebellion towards God you get what I'm saying? It's our human nature. Human nature is not basically good. It is basically selfish. It was designed to be good, but sin came in and warped it to where sinfulness became our second nature. You know, we say, well, it's second nature to him. Oh yeah, that's, he's really good at that. It's second nature. What you mean is that's their, that's who they are. We have become a people born into rebellion with a rebellious spirit because of our self-awareness and our uniqueness. The greatest gift God gives us is the source of our greatest problem. And some of you should be thinking, well, that's God's fault then. Well, guess what? He took responsibility for it. He allowed something like that to happen because love requires it. And now he's taken responsibility for it. He died on the cross so that you don't have to be a slave to yourself. Isn't that just the best best news? Well, listen to this, guys. Just just to cement this idea that we were born in rebellion, look at this verse, Romans 5.10. For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This verse is telling us that there was a time you didn't even recognize it when you were God's enemy. Everybody was born as God's enemy because they're born with this second nature that's become our human nature, that we are independent of God. We want to run our life our way. Now if we read this verse and believe it this means there's a whole bunch of nice people on your block who are God's enemies. All these nice nice they're nice people. They're nice they might be nice people but they're God's enemies. Because they haven't accepted God's free gift of Jesus on the cross which sets them free and has the power to set them free from their selfishness, their self-centeredness, their self-will. Being an enemy of God isn't a matter of your choices. It's a matter of your deepest nature. We start life that way. That's why we have this doctrine called original sin. No one, is en- no one enters the world without a rebellious spirit. It's just there. It's self-will. It's just there. Now, this isn't just a problem for non-Christians. This is a problem for Christians. The problem is that the selfish human nature survives our conversion. Did you know that? Just because you've accepted Jesus' gift on the cross and obtained his grace and mercy doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're not selfish. Your selfishness survives your conversion. Let me give you a proof text for that. And this is from the author of grace, okay? The only reason we have the concept of grace we have is the Apostle Paul. God bless the Apostle Paul. Without him, we would not have a clue about any of this. This is Paul describing his conversion and describing his own experience with his own human nature. You're not going to like this. Nobody does. Let's look at it. It's horrible. Romans seven fifteen to 24. I don't understand what I do. Have you ever felt that way? I don't understand. Why, why did I do that? Have you ever made a complete fool of yourself at a party or something and gotten in the car and said, why did I do that? Last night, Jerry said, I did too yesterday. Like, I'm still thinking about, why did I say that? That was such a stupid thing to say. For what I want to do, I do not do. I do what I hate to do. Whoa, I am messed up. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, brackets, and that I am bad, end brackets, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. It is sin living within me. Your human nature is still sinful. For I know that good itself doesn't dwell in me. I'm becoming very aware that I'm fundamentally not good. And if there's any good, I tell the Lord so many times, if there's any goodness in me, which is rare, it's because you're living there. It's only that. It ain't good. I'm not, I'm not particularly good. I'm particularly selfish. The good good itself doesn't dwell in me. It's my sinful nature that dwells in me. I have the desire to do what is good but I can't carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do. I do the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. Paul has a self-esteem problem. Paul needs a good counselor to talk about self-esteem, build his confidence. No, he doesn't. Paul's seeing things the way they are. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. It is sin living in me that does it. It's, I find that kind of circuitous, but anyway. So I find this lot work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being... At the depth of my soul, I I delight in God's law, but I see another thing at work in me waging war against the law of my mind, my thoughts, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. You did not come here today to hear this verse. If this is what this church is going to preach, I'll just go find a feel good church. Sometimes, before you get the feel good experience, you have to face the problem. Right? Just have to face the problem. Now, we just read that. How many of you have experienced something like that in your own life? Right? Last night? Jerry, I want to know what happened last night. You are making me seriously curious about what happened last night. (laughs) Look, if we're honest, we recognize the same struggle in our own lives. God has given us a new nature living inside of us. It has the power to overcome our rebellious self-centeredness, but it does not happen automatically. It is something we must cooperate with. The Holy Spirit will not overpower our will and force us to be good. If he did that, we would lose what makes us us. We would be puppets, not people. We get to decide how much of the new nature we'll experience and how far the new nature will replace the old one. We get to decide that. Well, the fact is there's a war that begins within us, the moment we accept Jesus. The old nature, our human nature, fighting with the divine nature. And that uh, fight is going to go on until the moment of our death. But it's one we can win as we go, not lose as we go. In other words, the presence of the divine nature in us can grow in influence and power. and, and, And like bread, having yeast, creating bread, It can go into more and more and more of our personality and our choices until we are becoming more and more like him To when we get to heaven, it's not a shock. You don't want to go to heaven and go, I don't fit here. I am not like these people. You want to go and go, it makes perfect sense. I feel like I'm finally home. I'm finally home now. We get a choice into how much of the divine nature we cooperate with. And as we do, we are being changed and transformed into his likenesses. The Holy Spirit comes and establishes a beachhead in our hearts and the war begins. Our self-centeredness versus the divine nature. And the battle ends a split second after we die. But we are making progress because we are making more choices in conformity with the divine nature and fewer choices in conformity with our selfishness. And you know, every time you choose, every time you choose to say no to your selfishness, your selfish nature, and do something godly, heaven goes like this. Look at that. Look at that. And the angels go, "I never thought Mark was capable of that." Guy. And God goes, "Isn't it amazing? Me neither. Jesus said, "I died for him. I died for him." Yeah. As we're being transformed, heaven rejoices. Every single little decision that you make that says "No to your selfishness is celebrated and written in a book in heaven. It's awesome. God, guys, it's just, it's absolutely awesome. And here's the thing. Which decisions do you think are more important to your soul? The big decisions or the little decisions? The li- no, it, it's not a trick question. It's the little ones. Why? Why are the little decisions more often important than the big ones? Why? Come on. Simple answer. It's math. There's more of them. There's more of them. If you start finding ways to say no to your selfishness and put God first, if you find little ways to do that, they seem invisible. They don't seem very important. But if you add them up, there's probably 20 or 30 or 40 of them every day. But the big decisions, they only come along once in a while. But if you attend to the little decisions and you're training yourself in a kind of mindset that says, it's not about me. It's about Him. And you make a bunch of those little decisions, just a few of them every day. You are changing in that process to when the big decision comes along, it's not that hard to make. I've already started practicing this thing a long time ago. Am I right? When the Lord revealed the depth of my sin to me and my selfishness after becoming a Christian, it was a horrific spiritual experience. I... I got sick. I was physically, I, I was going to throw up because he showed me the depth of my selfishness, that nasty cabin in the woods filled with dead things and stinking, rotting stuff. And I was appalled. Some of you heard this story before. It's kind of humorous, but it's the truth. I was sickened by what I saw. And I said, God, what are we, we going to do? I mean where do we start? Where do you want me to start with this? And he said this to me. He said, you know how you always take the last piece of pizza? I said, yeah. He said, don't do that anymore. I said, what? I said, pizza? I said, look at how selfish I am. It's unbelievable. I mean, I'm a complete mess. This is horrible. It's awful. And you're talking pizza? This is it for you, pizza? He said, yeah, pizza. Don't take the last piece of pizza. I said, no, 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 no. See, I know better than him. How, I know better than him how to handle my nasty selfishness. We need to do something the Marines would do. We need to beat the living crap out of me till I change. And he starts with pizza. But you know what? It worked. It worked. Because I, I love food. You wouldn't know it, but I oh, I got a food problem. Kind of worship food, you know. And it'd be the pizza sitting there, and, you know, there's one piece left. And I'm at the table and my eyes are going back and forth. For who's going to reach for it? And I'm hoping I can distract. Look at that. <laughs> Bang. Last piece of pizza. That's what I would do. But now I'm under the conviction of God. And I asked him, I said, okay, the pizza thing, I guess we'll do it. And there's that piece of pizza and it's talking to me. In Jesus' voice, don't eat me. This isn't communion. Don't eat me. I just made that up. That's not what happened. I thought it was funny, so I made it up. It worked, it was the thin end of the wedge into my selfishness. And it was practical because it happened all the time. And it just, God just started there. And it goes on for your whole life. The little foxes spoil the pizza. So, so, it, spoil the pizza. Yeah. Please.
1: As as he's speaking about the self awareness piece, um, I just want to add something really quick to this because it's very encouraging. <clears throat> but I, I am one of those guys that is very overly emotional sometimes, and I, I tend to be led by my feelings a lot more than my intellect. Anybody else in here is similar to that? Okay, just a few of us. Awesome. We can have a meeting outside. <laughs> 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 my name is Josh. I'm <laughs> controlled by my... Hi, Josh. We'll all cry together about stuff. <laughs> um, self-awareness has actually been something that I've, I've done too much of. And, you know, what you say, too much of a good thing can actually become a bad thing. Your greatest strength can also become your greatest weakness, you know. What a fine line that is in so many areas of our life. But you can get yourself into a downward spiral when you're always constantly aware of your wickedness. And you're always constantly aware of just how rotten you are or how Romans 7 says, What a wretched man I am. And I've been stuck there for a long time at some times, you know where you have a hard time approaching God. You have a hard time accepting this grace thing that we're talking about, right? And so as you're talking, Mark, and and as I'm sitting there, what's coming to mind is that, and I want to remind us, God is your biggest fan. (laughs) Like, He's in your corner, man. (laughs) The Bible says that God is for you. Mm -hmm. not against you. So when you are self-aware of your own wickedness and you feel unworthy about approaching God, like, I I messed up again. There's that same old, same old thing that I keep falling into again, you know? His mercy is new every day. His grace is sufficient for you. So I just want to remind us, encourage you, like, be self-aware, but be more aware of Him. Be more aware of His goodness. Don't be so self-consumed with all the garbage that's inside sometimes. Be more aware of like, well, you died for me. Your grace is sufficient. Your mercy is new every day. You are for me, not against me. You have plans to prosper me, not to harm me. Plans to give me hope and a future. Amen? All right. Right on. So it's... Remember...
0: It's, it's about the equal sign. Let's go back to the equal sign. The equal sign is the only thing that makes this work. Grace isn't grace without the equal sign. The Lord has revealed to me the depth of my sin and my selfishness. I can go to despair where the devil wants me to go. I can go to self-hate where the devil wants me to go. Or I can put the equal sign equals this is how much he loves me. This is what he died for that then turns the awareness of your sin into worship. And that really punches Satan in the face. Because he was going to use it against you, and now God's using the equal sign, this is how much he loves me, and you can worship with the happiest heart on earth because you've been set free, and you don't have to live this way, and he loves you anyway. Does that make sense? There's another value to seeing the depth of our sin. And this is its ability to engender change, to encourage and empower change. When Shelley and I got married, it was a second marriage for both of us out of very difficult situations. I've told this story to many of you, but just bear with me because there's some that haven't heard it. It's really important. You know how they tell you when you're, you're working on a marriage, especially your second marriage, you should make a list of the five things you want in your spouse that are godly and good, and then you pray for those five things, and then hopefully you get those five things? Well, I prayed for five things for my wife to be. Number one, that she would love God more than she loves me. Number two that she could be called to be a pastor's wife because it's a tough road. Number 3, that she would be a genu- genuinely happy person. There are two kinds of people in listen, this is wisdom. There's two kinds of people in this world. People that need a reason to be happy and people that needs a reason to be sad. Don't marry the one that needs a reason to be happy or you will become that reason and you will fail. You're looking for someone who is generally a happy person. So they won't be looking at you to make their life perfect. Hello? Okay. Number three, and we're getting a bit personal here. I have to find her very sexually attractive. I own it. I'm a man. Number four, and this is the miracle, that she will find me sexually attractive. (laughs) I got stuck on that. I said, well, maybe a blind girl would be good. Just having fun with you. It's not exactly what I said to the Lord. So you you pray the five things, and guess what? I got the five things in spades, in spades. Three months after we got married, Shelly got really, really sick. We had a church split in our church. It was horrible. She got really sick. She broke out in boils all over her body. The doctors were locally injecting the boils with cortisone to try to bring it under effect. Didn't work. They put her on a drug that's now the subject of a class action lawsuit. Ruined her intestinal situation. She's been in pain ever since, daily, pretty much constantly. 27 years. Five years into the marriage, I was angry. I was so mad at the Lord. Just so mad at him. And we have a good relationship. So I was able to tell him I was mad at him. I said, how could you do this to me? I said, you saw my first marriage, and you know what it was like. And I prayed for those five things like I was supposed to, and you gave her to me, and within three months, all this stuff goes to hell, and she's sick, and it's been this way for five years, and it may never be other than this. I said, knowing what you know... How could you give her to me? And this is what he said. What makes you think I gave her to you? What if I gave you to her? It was like running into a cement wall at 60 miles an hour. I mean, guys, I was, I was like, it took my breath away. I was, oh, God. I said, oh, God, I have defined my marriage entirely in terms of what's in it for me. I saw the depth of my selfishness in this relationship and it sickened me. It was sickening, honestly sickening. I said, God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And this is what he said. Now that you've seen the depth of your selfishness, you have a choice to make. I said, what is it? He said, well, now that you've seen it, you can spread your selfishness out over the next 30 years of marriage, 40 years of marriage, whatever, and spread it out over that time and deal with it that way. Or you can face it all at once right now, make it your enemy, and we'll work on it. What do you want to do? He said, what do you want to do? And it was like, he wasn't manipulating me like you should take number two. Door number two is the way to go. That Door number two, pick door number two. He didn't. He didn't do anything like that. He just said, Now that you've seen it, you've got two alternatives. Which one do you want? And I thought about it a lot. And I said, I, I want number two. Right now, I want to start facing my selfishness in this relationship. And he said, Okay. And we did and i got to see on a blow by blow day by day decision by decision basis just how seriously selfish i am but i got to choose not to be and he was there every single time going here's what you can do rather than that here's how you can respond rather than that and i did it cuz i realized my pride is not my friend it is my enemy and I must oppose it wherever possible. And it's because that's, that, was, it's been 20, that was 22 years ago, and it still goes on this way today. Shelley is a grateful, wonderful, thankful person, and she thanks me every day, several times a day, for the way I treat her. And it makes me really happy. We have a great relationship. It's not been easy, but we have a great marriage. The greatest gift God gave my marriage was seeing that he didn't give her to me, he gave me to her. That's the greatest gift he's given. Because it empowered a war against selfishness. Sometimes the only thing that will empower change is seeing the mess that you're really in. And when God does that, listen to me, that's called a gift. That's not condemnation. That's not manipulation. That's not shame. That's a gift. Paul said the love of God leads us to repentance. It's the mercy of God that leads us to repentance and it's mercy when he shows you your sin because then you get to do something about it and he's in there supercharging those good decisions with his Holy Spirit presence and helping you to live out your good choices. Okay? Let's apply it. Close your eyes and let's just apply this in some practical way today. Now, understand, this little exercise now is not a moment in self-hate, okay? That's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because we want to change. We want to grow. Holy Spirit, you're the one that convicts of sin. We don't have to go hunting for it. You'll do it. In fact, hunting for your sin to fix is an unwise thing to do. Let the Lord show you what you need to fix. Then you're in safe hands. Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to look at right now, in this stage of my life, right now? What do I need to see that needs to change? Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to look at next? What do you want to do? What do you want me to look at? What do you want me to see and trust you for change. What is it, Holy Spirit? Now, something's coming to mind. Just put your hand up. Something's coming to mind. Put your hand up. Okay, now we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and empower your will and empower your choices. Holy Spirit, you're the one that brings change. If we were able to change ourselves, we'd be proud. But you're the one that brings change. You empower our good choices. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now, do you come and touch every person that's put their hand up. Every single person that's seen something that needs to change. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and fill them more right now. I ask you to speak to them. Show them what you want them to do and how they can approach this. Holy Spirit, you're the one that makes righteousness, peace, and joy real to us. You're the one that takes the love of the Father, the spirit of adoption, and applies it to our hearts so that we know we're your child. We know that you love us. You're the one that does this. So Holy Spirit, we're trusting you right now to come and witness in our hearts That seeing what's wrong is the beginning of doing what's right. Seeing what's wrong is the beginning of doing what's right and being able to change and knowing that you're in the change business and that you're confident that you can bring about change in our life as as we cooperate with you in all the little decisions, all the little ways. Show us the little ways, show us the little decisions, Holy Spirit. Take us forward.
2: I'm covered by the power of your great love. My debt is paid, there's nothing that can separate i
1: soul today.
2: And I never, ever have to be afraid. One thing remains, one thing, one thing remains. Your love, your love never fails and never gives up and never runs It never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, and never gives up, it never runs out on me. Oh, Lord, it's your
1: love. Hallelujah. Lord, we worship you in this place. We thank you for your love. And your grace that is more than sufficient. Thank you, Jesus.
0: Against you? You against you? You want help in that or you want help with anything at all? Prayer team, why don't you come up? Prayer people, come on up. And we'll have a time of ministry and prayer. Anything you need. You can come and talk to us about it. And we'll be sure that you get prayed for before you leave. Okay. Now, as Jesus would say, go and sin no more. (laughs) Just came to me. This is a good one. Go and sin no more. For a while. (laughs) Okay, if you need prayer, come on up.
1: If you don't need prayer, thanks for coming. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow at the Memorial Day picnic
2: right down the road.